Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. And welcome to Security Insecure, hosted by Johnny Seifert. This is a celebrity mental health podcast where I say it's okay to not be okay. And if you have the same mantra as me, then before we get to today's guest, please follow Security Insecure and need that five-star rating and a review. Now let me tell you about my guest today. In this episode, you're going to hear from another of my favourite authors in the Security Insecure book club, where we hear from an author who opens about the mental health issues around their novel. This week, it's the book. It's the game of lies that puts the Truman Show into a reality show with shocking consequences. And to tell me more, I'm delighted to welcome to Security Insecure, it's Claire McIntosh. Hello, Claire. Hi. Thank you so much for this. Now, I read your book literally in a day, and that's very unheard of in England. So I can't tell you how much I loved it. But for those who haven't read A Game of Life yet, can you tell me what it's all about? It is about seven contestants who think they've signed up to a survival-style reality TV show being filmed in the Welsh mountains, but when the cameras start rolling, the presenter drops a bombshell. They're not here for a survival show. They're here for a reality TV show all about secrets. And to stay in the game, they have to protect their own secret and expose someone else's. So the stakes have suddenly got really personal and really high. And if you're thinking of that as a viewer, you want to see that. You want to see absolute chaos. You want to see people going in at each other. You know, if you think of Big Brother 5, for example, with Victor and Emma on Fight Night, on Love Island, where you have those big dramas. Why do you think as a viewer, we want to see that happen? It's this horrible, macabre uh, side to society, I, I think. It's, it's, it's car crash TV, isn't it? It's why we uh, rub the neck on motorways when there are awful collisions. It's why we watch bad things happen to people on X Factor, people being mocked. And I think it probably comes down to that feeling of relief that it's not happening to you. You can know that you are safe and secure. And there's a bit of us, not a very nice bit of us, which enjoys the fact that it's happening to someone else and not us. What you just said about being on the motorway and then you kind of slow down because you have to see what's going on. But if you're not driving, because obviously it's not safe to do so, you're a former police officer, so I'm not going to get myself in trouble with the law. (laughs) But uh, if you are on a road and you see a fire and you run to the fire because you want to see that house burning down and you want to film it for your TikTok and Instagram and almost have that validation to say, hey, I was here first. Do you think there is some 
a, a small part that's still going in that sense of I'm glad my house is not on fire. Not I'm laughing at you, but that, what what is that middle bit of why do I want to see your house on fire? So that's an interesting example because I think the people who film tragedy and disaster and put it on social media that that's a different breed entirely that is all about self-validation they're the same sorts of people who announce a celebrity's death as though you know they're they're the oracle and you know Facebook needs to know what they what they need to say I cannot imagine standing there in front of a burning house or any other kind of, of accident and wanting to film it to share it with the world. I think it's a hideous, hideous thing to do. So no, I don't think those people are actively thinking, oh, thank goodness, it's, it's not me. But I think we do have this sort of compulsion to check out something awful that's happening. And there is definitely a sense of relief that it's someone else's problem. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you're right about that validation when it comes to social media. And when it's when a celebrity dies, I've worked in showbiz for many years, and when a celebrity dies and I've got a selfie with them, oh, that selfie's going on straight away. <laughs> such an honour to have known that person. or to have met them. Half the people on my phone I've got pictures with who I have no idea who they are. And I've just got these pictures. I'm like, I know you were famous at some point, but I don't know who you are. But you've died. I recognise your face. I'm going to put you up there now. Um, so the validation is interesting as well when it comes to reality TV. And your reality TV show of the book is called Exposure. And it's the fact that people want to be on there. So we know, as you've said, that people like to watch a tragedy as a viewer. But then to take that a step further and go, I've watched all these tragedies as a viewer I actively want to be part of that tragedy now. It's a really interesting mindset as well about why people actually want to do reality TV for validation. So I don't think that anybody goes into reality TV anticipating trauma and, and tragedy. I think they they believe that they're going to be the ones to be shown in a good light. You know, mm. there's a kind of naivety, I suppose. And yet we should all know by now that there is nothing real about reality TV. We should know that contestants are cast in exactly the same way that a soap opera is cast you know here's the the old one here's the funny one here's the fat one here's the hot one the the producers are putting together a cast of characters and they will manipulate the content in order to influence how the viewer feels about those people but even though we know that objectively I suspect that the contestants going into it still hold on to this thought that they're going to come across in a great light and ultimately they're going to be famous because a desire for fame is what drives so many people to apply for reality TV. and when you think about reality tv a lot of the people who do those sort of shows are quite young you know 18 to 25 is predominantly the years that people will start the application forms to get on the shows and then do it for the validation thinking this is going to be their career and once you've done love island that's it, you're famous forever. For someone like you, Claire, who was a police officer for 12 years and then becomes such a successful author, where does fame fit in there? Or is fame not even an option? It's more, I just want to sell books and I'm the face of the book, my name's on the book, but it's not really about me, it's about the stories that I'm telling. Fame's a really interesting concept for authors, I think, because it's, you're right, we're, we're, we're driven by lots of different things. So for me personally, I am driven by a desire to, to tell stories. So that's my, my primary goal. I would do that if no one bought my books. I would do that if I'd never found a publisher. I would be writing, I'd be telling stories. So that's my main driver. 
but obviously this is my job you know this is what pays the mortgage what you know feeds the kids so selling books is not only something that needs to happen from a, a business point of view but it's also I guess where I get my validation and you know however big your ego is we all need a little bit of encouragement we all need some validation and so success and fame for me I guess is book sales and it is people having heard of my books recognizing my covers knowing my name recommending me um and that is a, a I find it a weird, a weird situation sometimes. Um, it, it varies very much from country to country. I'm, I'm published in about 40 countries and some. So Finland, for example, I'm a, a sort of continual bestseller, which I find extraordinary. And so um, everyone in Finland has heard of my books and you know knows my name. And then I might go somewhere like Germany where I don't sell as, as well. And I would find that nobody really knows who, who I am. So it's quite grounding in a way to have uh, the sort of fame in inverted commas that isn't like an actor being mobbed on the street, which I think must really mess with your head. But for that actor who's being mobbed on the street, it's a, it's, it's a moment, right? It's a moment that they're on the street, but they're also on this massive TV show and they know that everyone is watching. If you think about, let's say, for example, EastEnders, Divorce Papers, 1986, 30 million people watching Dan and Angie, then walks on the street, he's going to get mobbed. Everyone is watching it. You've got Love Island who are going, well, I need to be on TikTok and Instagram and I'm chasing that validation of those numbers. And then watching their number count go up once they've left the villa. For someone like you who is on social media, you've got your book sales, you've got the Sunday Times bookshop, but then you're also being published, as you said, in 40 different countries. How do you stay grounded and not think mentally, oh my God, I need to get better in Finland. Oh my God, Germany, I need to go and do more chat shows there. Why are the numbers not changing? Oh my God, oh my God. And then in England, I've got to focus on that because that's my main audience. And then, you know, I'm doing a bit of English and a bit of Welsh in my books and therefore I need to change the Welsh audience, but then I don't want to alienate the Germans. And, ah! and you, your oh mind must God. just explode. It's like you're in my head, Johnny. <laughs> and that's the goal of security and secure. That's why you keep listening to it. Um, Yeah, that, I mean, that that is... That is what my head is like all, all the time, to be honest. And it's a weird mix. So I am I am pretty grounded. And I think that's partly to do with where I live. I live in a very small, rural, Welsh-speaking community. You know, it's not full of celebrities. I'm not, I'm not meeting lots of other authors or um, TV people all the time. I'm taking the bins out. I'm taking the kids to school. I'm, you know, doing the grocery shop, going to the tip, all those sorts of things that everybody does. But that is 90% of my life and sitting in my office, writing my books. The 10% is the traveling around the world. It's the champagne parties. It's all amazing. It's, it's long queues of people wanting signatures. So I think the proportion means that mostly I'm grounded, but in the background of, taking the bins out and going to the tip my head is constantly pushing me to be better to do better to write faster to write better to crack a country I haven't cracked yet you know worrying about the business side of it and I think that's perhaps the curse of self-employment in a way that we're constantly hustling you're not getting that validation if you work in an office and every year you get your review and you get told you're doing well and here's a bonus. That's one thing. When you are freelance and self-employed, you are basically chasing your own tail because you're chasing to be the Danielle Steele who releases three books a year. 
worldwide and who's got hundreds and hundreds of books out or like a Hallmark Christmas movie that it's the exact same idea and it's replicated a thousand times and you've got a thousand, thousand, thousands of films of those. When you do a book though, and I think for those listening and watching, the easiest way to relate to it is like an essay. We all did an essay at school or dissertation at university and you always come back to it and you look at your draft and think, oh, I've missed a full stop there. Or I could have put that, I just have made that a bit tighter. What's your feedback to yourself now that you've seen Game of Lies, now that it's gone out in paperback, now that it's been out for a couple of months, how do you look at that book now? Are you proud of it? Or are you going, I was proud of it. However, if I was to do it again, I'd have changed X, Y, Z. Good question. I am um, proud of all my books. Each one is better than the one before in, in a different way, you know, perhaps technically, or maybe I've created a better world or, or whatever. There's always a, a way in which I've, I've sort of improved my craft as one does when one's been in a job for a number of years. Uh, I wouldn't read it now if I if I read it now so I so A Game of Lies is my best book um, and that's because it's the one I've just written and so I I you know I always feel that way but also I think it's just the tightest and the paciest and you know I'm, I'm pleased with it but if I were to sit down and read it my hand would be itching to to put red pen all over it I I there would be there are always things you can change you know there'd be a bit of clunky dialogue somewhere there'd be some commas that were out of place maybe whole pages where I've waffled on a bit and I feel I should cut so I just don't do that I don't read my books every now and again I read from my books at an event and then I find myself editing on the fly Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. them have got secrets that's the main crux of it of they don't want a secret revealed it's interesting that you use secret as your big plot twist each time why do you think secrets are so imperative in everyday life because we've all got secrets and i think most of our secrets would probably tell one person whether it's a partner or a best friend but it's something that we don't talk about about that vulnerability of having a secret what's so fascinating about secrets is that they are entirely relative to the person keeping them. So to one person, the fact that uh, maybe they have a criminal record, this might be the biggest secret in the world. If they, if that secret is exposed, they might lose their job, they might lose friendships, relationships, their children, I mean, all sorts of, of things could be at stake. To another person, they might be entirely open about the fact that they've got a criminal record. You know, even people who have been in, in prison for several times might be very, very comfortable talking about that. And it will entirely depend on who they are, what they've got to lose, you know, what their, their life is like. And so I think that's that's what makes it such rich territory for writers and writers of crime fiction specifically, because you can create a character to whom that secret matters um, by looking at who they are and what their values and their morals are and their family sort of upbringing, because that's going to determine how they feel about that secret. And then, of course, if a secret is really important to you, that becomes high value collateral and that can be used by someone else, be it for blackmail or, or other purposes. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that also the perception of it of what does it mean to society? Because I think a lot of the secrets we have we become so judgmental of ourselves and worry, oh my God, what's everyone going to say? And probably no one cares. And probably if you said it out loud, you're like, well, okay, well, what's the worst that can happen if that was even told? And in many cases, sharing, I mean, we talk about, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved. In many cases, when you when you share a secret, when you come clean with it, you, you know, confess to whatever it is you've you've done, it does make it better. And it sort of dissipates, it takes the power of the secret away. And of course, that's what Miles, so Miles Young in the book is, is the um, TV producer who's put this awful reality TV show together. And this is his kind of justification. I mean, we know from his, his character that really he's, he's in this for fame and, and fortune like most people. But he justifies the show by saying it's better for everyone to just come clean. They'll feel so much better once they're no longer dragging around this terrible secret. You know, I'm doing this for the good of the contestants. My favorite line from your book, A Game of Lies, and it's on page 39, so quite early on into your book, and you wrote, 
exposure is holding up a mirror to society with all its filters and you're completely right because the amount of filters we put on whether it's barriers with friends with professionalism religion spirituality we all have those little filter like little lenses you put on the glasses when you go to the optician where you have to go well how am I going to look at the world and how's the world now going to look at me and I think that emulates bringing everything together of a game of lies of everything that the messages that you're getting across in the whole book yeah the, the filters are um like you say extensive I I was thinking about that a lot actually this year I've been thinking about it a lot over the last year because I I've always written fiction and a fiction writer is applying filters so we're, we're looking at the world through a filter and that's that's how we're choosing to tell our story in the spring next year I've got a, um, a non-fiction book coming out on grief so it's a grief memoir so it was entirely different to write because although I've looked at grief in my novels before multiple times actually I've always had that filter that kind of protection between what I really think about it and what I'm sharing with the reader and for the first time I was having to confront my own grief and my own sort of mental health journey after losing my son and write about it in a very raw very unfiltered way and it it hurts you know it's hard it's hard to be unfiltered that's why we walk around with fake smiles and why we put filters on our Instagram posts because it's really difficult to be open and honest what was that like for you from a cathartic point of view that you're putting pen to paper to kind of let out those feelings of grief that have probably built up inside you and that you've used your books like A Last Part and A Game of Lies as a way of deflecting from what's really going on? What it's been like has been, it's, it's so I always think of my grief as, as a box. So my son died, um, it, it'll be 18 years next year. And for 18 years, I have kept my grief in a box. And over the years, I've been able to open it just little bits at a time. You know, I would open it a little bit and sort of deal with a bit of grief, but then I'd have to close the box. So keep it really quite compartmentalized. And at different times of my life, I've been able to have that box open for a bit longer or the lid open a bit more. And at other times it's been firmly shut for, for long periods of time. When I started this memoir, I had to open that box wide and I had to leave it open while I wrote the book. And I wrote the first draft and it hurt and it made me cry and it made me think about things I didn't really want to think about. But I was sort of okay and I handed it in and my editor was really pleased with it. And she said, right, second draft, I want you to dig deeper. I want more. I want more of this. I want more of that. I want, you know, uh, you to really, really dig into how you feel. And so, and I sort of thought I'd done that in the first draft, but I really hadn't. I'd still kept a bit of a distance. That lid wasn't entirely open. So when I did the rewrite, it was absolutely kind of open, open box. Um, and yeah, it was really painful. I couldn't write it at home, I discovered. I think because partly from a practical point of view that it's a busy house, the the kids are around, people come to the door. I, I didn't want those sort of intrusions when I was perhaps in a particularly emotional um, moment in the book. But also I didn't want to bring the past into the present in in that way. I didn't want to, I almost didn't want to to tarnish this house where we live now and the life that we lead 
with the awfulness of the early years of my grief. And so all those early bits of the book I had to write in hotel rooms or on trains or, you know, in parks, just anonymous places where I could be alone with my thoughts. An author called Poppy North said that you have to separate yourself from the room. And so when you look at that hotel room now, you go, that hotel room is those memories. And you don't return to that room. Whereas if you start writing it here, you go, well, I remember what I was just writing and it brings it all back. What have you learned about yourself in the past 18 years now that you reflect on that time about who you are as a person now compared to who you were when your grief journey first happened, Claire? I have learned that I am way, way stronger than I ever thought I was. You know, I remember thinking I will not survive this. I will not survive this pain. And, you know, here, here I am not just surviving, but thriving. I've learned that there's no right way to grieve. Everyone grieves differently. Um, and that grief is not a linear process that I'm sure you've read a lot and your listeners will have read a lot about the um, uh, five stages of grief. Sometimes it's seven stages of grief. And, and when that's laid out for us, I think it gives us the wrong impression sometimes because it gives the impression that you are going to move through these stages in order they're going to be roughly the same sort of length and it's going to be this linear process and it, it, it's in my experiences it's not like that at all you you know I, I have flitted between denial and anger and despair and acceptance you know like a, a ping pong ball over the last 18 years and initially I found that really unnerving distressing sort of discombobulating to not know how I would feel on any one day now I'm that much older you know I'm 47 now a lot of water has gone under the bridge and I think I'm just more relaxed and more accepting of how I might feel at any one moment and able to say the way I feel is the right way to feel because that's just how I'm feeling right now and not being hard on myself because I should be better by now or I should be feeling like this. I should be feeling happy. I should be feeling moved. You know, actually how you feel is how you feel and that's the right way to be. Completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. I don't want to upset you anymore. So final question for me, Claire, is your book also studies phobias and there's phobias of water and snakes and rats etc so final question for you is what is your phobia and why i'm not going to call it a phobia because i have um i'm conscious of people who really really have big phobias but i have a bit of a fear of birds in enclosed spaces so i'm really cool with birds outside unless there's a big flock of them there used to be a guy in oxford where i worked as a police officer i was quite new who used to feed the pigeons and he would feed the pigeons by covering his sleeves with honey and birdseed and then stand in the street and all these pigeons would, would flock and he would cause quite a disturbance. The police would often be called to disperse it. And it was honestly the, this, my worst job ever was to go up to this guy and, and disperse these pigeons. So my phobia, so in, in the book, people are are sent to what's called the confession pod and they have three minutes with their phobia um, to try and encourage them to confess. So if I was in the confession pod with a flock of pigeons, I tell you, I would have that confession with you within 10 seconds.
that was Claire McIntosh. Her book, A Game of Lies, is out to buy now. Please do go and buy it. And if you're enjoying the Security and Secure Book Club, we've got many authors like Nicola Gill and Amanda Powers, Jane Fallon, uh, Adele Parks, Tim Weaver, Annabelle Knight. They've all been on the Security and Secure Book Club, so go and check out those episodes. If you're watching on YouTube or wherever you're listening on whatever platform you're listening on, please click that follow button. Please leave a review and let's keep spreading the word. It's okay to not be okay. On Instagram, at Johnny Seifert, at Security and Secure Podcast. Where you can find me on TikTok, at Johnny Seifert 92, and on Twitter, at Johnny Seifert. Let's keep spreading the word. It's okay to not be okay. And that's all done with your help. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.